You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. I'm Byron Williams, we're back with The Small Print, and today my guest is Ivo Factor. As always, please do introduce yourself the way you want to be introduced. Hi, uh, well I'm a columnist these days, I've been a journalist for a very long time. Um, I write specifically about um, politics, economics and so on, from the perspective of free markets and individual liberty. Um, I describe, I've always described myself as a libertarian. Um, these days I write for The Daily Friend, which is a publication published by the uh, Institute for Race Relations, um, which is where you can find me, and on Twitter you can find me on at Ivo Fechter. Thank you very much. Well, the reason we invited you on the show is that you've taken a bit of a heretical position in terms of the general libertarian consensus to some of the government policy recommendations and implementations of policy around COVID. And particularly, I wanted to speak to you about vaccine passes as opposed to vaccines. Because I think that's an important distinction. There's obviously a difference between whether vaccines are the right choice and for who in society and whether people should have a right to choose. And of course, that degree of rights to choose has a whole lot of variance in it from absolutely leave it up to the individual all the way through to forced vaccine mandates. And I think passes are an interesting debate because it's neither quite here nor quite there. It's not a complete hard line, you must do it. But then again, when mandates and when passes start to get conflated to the point that you're unable to earn an income, for example, unless you have a vaccine pass, then it can be construed you know, erring towards the side of mandates, which is obviously quite unusual sort of position for a libertarian to take because things like mandates and passes tend to be more of a utilitarian perspective because it focuses more on the common good than individual liberty. So I thought your position is interesting. So we thought we'd start with you because it's not quite so binary black and white and obviously political discourse that's cuts, you know, dividing people into two groups of good people and bad people and them and us is not particularly helpful. So I thought it'd be interesting to get your perspective and also to invite you to argue both sides because you obviously understand the general liberty mind more so than other people too so I'll also give you an opportunity to sort of steel man the other side of the argument as well but let's start with your views on vaccine passes as to whether they are a good or a bad thing for society and for the individual and why you have taken the position that you have look I think uh, the, the vaccine pass argument is, is fairly simple and that's simply uh, people are going to require um, uh, evidence that you've been vaccinated uh, for one purpose or another. International airlines are going to require it. Um, some, some employers might require it. Some people might require it if you, that, you know, to admit you onto their private property. Um, now, in order, to, in order for those people to, to require that sort of um, information, they need something that is reliable and, and secure. Um, you know, these little handwritten cards that we got are very easily forged. The cards themselves are very easily stolen or printed. Um, so, so that really isn't a satisfactory proof of vaccination. So I, I think it is reasonable to produce a, a reliable and, and trustworthy uh, proof of vaccination, um, like we now allegedly have with these, these QR code-based um, vaccine certificates. Um, I'm not sure how secure they are. I'm going to leave that up to the techies uh, to figure out how easily they can be forged, but there's certainly a step in the right direction. I think they'll be useful for them from that perspective. But as you said, the argument gets a, gets a lot more complicated. Um, 
and, and that really goes back to a lot of my thinking around vaccines and around the purpose of small state. Um, you know, I've always believed that government should be small, as small as possible. Um, I'm always biased towards a smaller government rather than a bigger one. Um, but that its fundamental purpose is protection of life, liberty and property. Um, now, when I say protection of life, it doesn't mean protection of life from yourself. Right? You can jump off a cliff with a, with a parachute over you know, if you like. That's fine. The government has absolutely no right to stop you from doing that. Um, you can ride a motorbike without a helmet if you like. Um, the government's got no right to stop you from doing that. Um, but they do. Same with they do. They shouldn't. Uh, because I okay, on your perspective, just so you clarify your position. Then, that's, yeah. that's, that's on my perspective. The, the protection of life is protection of life from the threat of other people. Right? Um, and John Stuart Mill put it um, very clearly. Uh, he calls it the harm principle, or we call it the harm principle, which says that uh, you know, anyone's liberty cannot be constrained other than for uh, reasons of preventing harm to someone else. Right? So you can constrain my liberty to fire a firearm, uh, you know, in order to protect other people. Right? Um, and I believe that covers a bunch of things. It covers drunk driving laws, for example. I don't think that, you know, in, in essence, if you drive drunk, you haven't actually committed any crime. You haven't actually harmed anyone, have you? Um, so no, that's an important distinction because that's yeah. the, there you're talking about risk. You're not talking about harm. And there, there is a distinction ethically and politically and legally between risk and harm. True, uh, true. But I think that there's a significant risk of harm. I think that's a reasonable. Um, yeah, but uh, let's let's just let's keep those separate. The the difference between risk of harm and causing harm, which is obviously like legally quite quite an important distinction. Yes, no, it is an important distinction. It is an important distinction. In, mm. But in in my view, the, the the a significant risk of harm is a legitimate reason for government to regulate. Um, Fair enough. Which is which is why I don't oppose drunk driving laws. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of neutral about seatbelts, but I don't think they should. They ought to be mandate, mandatory because they don't actually harm or risk anyone else. You know, they, they risk only the wearer. Unless you're talking um, about not children. Not the non-wearer in this case. Say again? Unless you're talking about children who are put into uh, a, a risky situation because a car does obviously pose risk, but they don't correct. have the agency to make the choice on their correct. own behalf. Correct. Children, children are very complicated, uh, very complicated beings to make laws around. We'll come um, back to the children. <laughs> because, because, of, because of the problem of who actually has the authority over them, uh, you know, uh, what rights do they themselves have? Um, and, and to what extent do their, do their rights devolve to parents? Or what rights do parents have over children? Now, that's a very complicated debate that I don't think, really think we should get into right now. Um, so, to my mind, public health is a, a legitimate... Um, function of government, um, but only in a limited sense, uh, particularly with infectious diseases. Um, I think there's a reason to get public to get government involved. I cannot see a good free market response to the Black Plague, um, you know, to an infectious disease, to COVID-19. I, I, I simply cannot. I cannot conceive of a way in which everyone left to their own devices could effectively. Um, you know, control a, a, a serious pandemic, uh, a serious pandemic that is causing a lot of deaths. Um, so, the game theory is very uncomfortable when it comes to equilibrium. Yes. Say, say again. The game theory is very uncomfortable when it comes to an equilibrium yes, in that sort yes. of a game. 
indeed. And in that sense, I am I am probably a little utilitarian in my view on 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 public health. Um, I, I think there is a role for government to play, and that it fits within the you know what I always say: government's role is is, is to protect life, liberty, and property, and nothing more. Um, so that's sort of where my, my where my view comes from. Um, on uh, you know I'm 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 opposed to vaccine mandates, but not on liberal principles. Right? I don't think that they violate liberal pr liberal principles necessarily because of what I said. Because I you know based on the harm principle. I think they are permissible in a liberal society. Um, I'm opposed to them simply for the same reason that the World Health Organization is opposed to them, and said this will just encourage anti-vaxxers. You know, yes, because any sort of coercion just sows seeds of distrust. It has quite a backfire ex exactly. effect almost immediately. There's nothing reinforces a conspiracy like, like a rule. <laughs> correct, correct. That is exactly the problem, and that's exactly why I would, I would say don't mandate vaccines. Um, if they did so, I'm not going to be the most vocal opponent of the idea, you know, but, uh, you know, because I, I don't think it violates basic principles. Um, and the World Health Organization also says that if it cannot be done in any other way, then we might consider um, coercion. Um, but, uh, you know, that's sort of where my thinking is. And, that, and that's, it, yeah, it leaves me, as you say, a, a heretic to, to, to libertarians. Um, but on the other hand, I'm also anti anti most lockdown rules, um, you know, and I have been right from the start. So my position is sort of a lot, a lot more nuanced, and, and that's really difficult in in society today, where everything becomes politicized and, and polarized, and you know, if you're not for us, you're against us. So exactly. yeah, <laughs> considered a massive traitor for taking COVID serious, for being against lockdown, which I should be as a libertarian but for taking COVID seriously and thinking that vaccines are a marvelous idea. Um, okay, so let, let's unpack that a little bit. So let's get a bit of clarity on your position, because as you say, this is a nuanced issue and there's a whole lot of difference between forced mandates and just leave everybody to their own devices when it comes to vaccines. In your principle, when you are talking about something like a vaccine pass, for me, some of the first questions that come to mind are, is this a state mandated centralized thing? Or is this something that individual private entities like private homes, private organizations or private businesses should be implementing for their own patrons and employees? So for me, there's quite a distinction there already. Like I've, as far as I'm concerned, private businesses can make up whatever stupid rules they like when it comes to who they're going to serve and who not. Because if they choose to limit who they serve, I mean, that's that's on them. They must make the economic choice that makes sense for them. If they want to have a restaurant where everyone must wear a, a penguin suit, for example, that sort of that should be up to them from my perspective. Obviously, when it comes to vaccines, you're dealing with a different dynamic there too, because you're trying to balance the rights and the desirability of your customers and what your customers want and also your responsibilities as an employer to protect your employees. So you're dealing with essentially three groups already on a corporate side, but I feel like corporates should be able to make their own choices there. That would be my perspective. But when it comes to a pass, we're talking really here about something that's being played out in the public sector, which is where ethically I think the questions become more difficult. On a corporate side, the, the, the question should be done from an economic perspective. I mean, that's what the private sector is. It's incentivized by capital. And that's, that's the way it is if we live in a capitalistic society. But in the, pri in the public sector, it's more difficult because in effect, as soon as you have 
access to certain rights and privileges that are limited based on a proactive action. In this case, it would be going out and getting a vaccine. As long as that is sort of limiting your, what you previously were your rights to participate in society, to do things like earn an income, if you like based or working for a state organization, for example, or your freedom of movement or the rest of it, that becomes a bit more tricky because the state should be treating all citizens equally. I mean, that's that which is quite different from businesses, which which can discriminate based on sort of who their clientele and who their target markets are, even if they can't by law. I mean, there's a distinction there. And in theory, at least, governments are supposed to serve all of their citizens equally. And also, in theory, rights shouldn't necessarily be conditional on proactive behavior. I know this is where libertarians get into a lot of trouble with things like taxes, because taxes have essentially created two-tier societies where some of our rights are conditional on doing things, which is quite different from laws in the general harm-based sense, which prevent us from doing bad things. Laws that require us to do something positively are, are quite a different step, and I think it is quite a line for quite a lot of people who do skew libertarian or, or anti-authoritarian or whatever it is on the playing field. How have you rationalized that separation of powers between a discriminatory state that effectively sets up you know, different rules or different rights for certain groups of people all underneath their own mandates and the ability for private organizations to make their own choices as to who, quite frankly, they want to associate with? Look, I agree with you on, on private organizations. They can set absolutely any rules they like. Um, and I've used this in, in the example of smoking, for example. I believe yeah. the private landlords should be should be it should be up to them to decide whether or not they want to permit smoking on their premises, um, and it's up to customers to then decide whether they want to do business with this guy uh, on yeah. that basis. So, um, you know, the, the same is true for vaccines and and, and uh, you know sick people in general. You know, I, I, I might not want sick people in general uh, in my restaurant or my pub. Um, you know, for for obvious reasons, I don't want to, I don't want to risk other customers. I don't want to risk my staff. So if you're going to come in, they're all sniffly, and I'm, I'm going to kick you out. Sorry, goodbye. There's there's severe um, economic choices. Yes, exactly. You should be able you know, to make your own and choices. The, and those are economic exactly, and, and that's and that's the, the absolutely the owner's choice. Um, in that sense, the you know the the, COVID, the, the vaccination certificate is merely a, a formal way of them to be able to discriminate. Um, and, and people don't like that, that you're actually giving them the ability to, to discriminate, um, which they might not have had if you didn't have COVID or vaccination certificates. Um, but I think it's absolutely the right to discriminate. I haven't seen anything suggesting that the government would um, discriminate on the basis of service delivery to people um, on the basis of their vaccination status. Not in South Africa, but there are examples on an international level, which I think are drawing pe some people's concerns. Like in some parts of Europe, for example, you're not allowed to like be seen in, 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 within a certain like meterage from your house or a certain radius from your house if you don't have a vaccine. I know Australia has done some, some sorts of things similar, not with vaccines yet per se, but to no. do with sort of quarantine laws. And I know that there's some sort of states in the United States that are suggesting that people that have not got a vaccine or a vaccine certificate won't be able to get organ transplants for any reason, even not COVID related. You know, like there's, there's a few sort of examples oh, that start popping up that indicate that, you know, rights within the public sphere 
could be limited on the basis of, of this. And I, I think Canada is a good example there, where you're not actually allowed to sort of leave the country <laughs> or I use any think, sort of transport, public transport, if you, know, you don't have, have to the, take, the codes. You'd have to take each of them on, 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 mm. uh, on their own merits. Um, if, you, if you look at travel bans, for example, they are, have weren't justifiable um, long before we had vaccines. You know, the World Health Organization has never advocated um, travel bans, they, they, nobody's ever believed that they work. You know, once a, once a, a disease is endemic in a country, the few people that um, come in or out of a country aren't going to make much difference uh, to, the, to, to the sort of epidemiological load in a country. So travel bans were, were nonsense right from the start, and they will stay nonsense uh, you know, when, when they now come out with, with them being based on, on, on vaccine passports. Look. People are still going to people are still going to do it. I mean, private airlines are still going to require vaccinations or at least a negative COVID test, um, which incidentally I think is a very good safety valve there. The, the, uh, that you have an option to present a negative COVID test. Um, if you don't want to be vaccinated, that's fine, but then just proves that you don't have COVID. Um, but isn't that a that a, another another question that people have because as as I'm sort of terming them, so if you can have like be a COVID virgin or be a COVID veteran, as someone that's either recovered or not had it at all, doesn't the data seem to indicate at the moment? I don't know if you've looked at it that an unvaccinated COVID veteran, a recovered patient, would be less of a risk to society than a vaccinated COVID virgin. So no, if from a from a spreadability perspective, not from a not from a cost to society perspective, which we'll get to because stick with the, the sort of physical risk that people pose on other people. Should there be exemptions then too? Or is that because that the, if if the science I, does back that up and we are rather restricting people's movement based on the, the vaccination status rather than based on the health status, that opens up quite a lot of different questions that we'd have to unpack. Yeah. No, look, if that makes sense. Um, uh, there's contradictory evidence on, on how good um, natural COVID immunity is. Um, it no, seems wait, to be but, but we have to distinguish between immunity, which is obviously the, your risk to yourself and getting sick, and the, the, your virility, your ability to infect yes. other people. I'll, yeah. I'll because address, from I'll a public address, good perspective, virality uh, uh, is, is obviously the, the key measure. I'll, I'll, right? I'll, I'll, address, I'll address both, because you know, mm. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of talk around that, oh, if you've had COVID or you think you've had COVID, then you don't need a vaccine. Um, yeah, that's there's, contradict there's contradictory evidence on that. Um, and if, you know, there's, there's some studies that say that uh, natural immunity is pretty good, pretty strong and pretty long-lasting. Um, there's others that say it varies significantly between people, depending on how severely uh, you got the disease in the first place. That if you didn't get it that badly, you also haven't got very strong immunity. Um, which, yes. which, on balance, you know, the, the, the recommendation is still that you probably should get um, at least one vaccine shot in addition for your to own sake. Been, for your own sake, in addition yes. to having been uh, having had COVID in the first place. Um, the the issue on transmissibility um, that seems to be far more clear is that um, once you have immunity, and whether that's natural immunity or, or vaccine derived immunity, it doesn't really matter. Once you are immune, you are far less likely to transmit the disease. Right? Breakthrough infections are rare. Now, I, I know that some, uh, some people say, oh, but look, here's a study that said that um, viral load in the vaccinated are just as high or can be just as high in, in, uh, as in the unvaccinated. But that doesn't tell the whole story. 
right? That doesn't tell you how often people get infected in the first place if they're vaccinated. It also doesn't tell you how quickly they clear that viral load um, as a vaccinated person, which is much more quickly than an unvaccinated person would. So if they are infectious, they're infectious for a much shorter time. Very so, valid points. All of the evidence, and I've looked at many, many papers on this, um, all of the evidence suggests that you are significantly less likely to transmit the disease if you're vaccinated than if you're unvaccinated. So there, there's absolutely a legitimate reason to discriminate, um, you know, on that, on that basis. Are um, you less likely to transmit the disease if you, are, uh, have, if you have natural immunity compared to someone that has vaccinated immunity? Or do you know I would, that? I mean, I'm not a, I'm I, not a scientist. I, I don't, I'm just I, asking I, the question. I don't know that. I would assume if the immunity is equivalent, then you would, you know, it would be equivalent in that sense too. Um, you would also be less likely. And and yeah, I'm I'm not opposed at all to, you know, based if there is su su sufficient scientific evidence for it, to say that uh, look, if you've had COVID and you can show that you have good immunity to it, then you get a waiver and you get a, a vaccine certificate anyway, or an immunity certificate anyway. Um, I wouldn't have an objection to that. You know, I, I leave it up to the scientists to decide whether that's justified or not. But uh, uh, Legally, hopefully, you just look at the data then and see if, it, if it's... Yes, yes, exactly. If the data yeah, says you go, you should go. Uh, I think rejecting that, assuming the data would say that there is some equivalence there, and I don't know, so I'm s suggesting if, they, if the data does show that, and you still then discriminated based on the positive action people took, then there would be questions around whether the pass is more to do with compliance or due to, due to do with public health, and that would be a whole different set of questions, which is, I think where the debate seems to have moved in some other countries that are a bit further ahead of the curve than South Africa, but I don't think that's the debate here yet. No. It's a strange, I mean, I've, I've heard this before, you know, there's, there's all these conspiracy theories about, oh, this is about control, and this is about, this is totalitarianism, and this is the new world order, and it's, it's Klaus Schwab, and the you know, World Economic Forum with their great reset, they just want to control us all. I don't see how they need vaccines or vaccine passports in order to control us all you know all they need right is our cell phones and our facebook accounts and our, our ids which we carry already and our driver's licenses which we carry already you know and need to show on regular and our passports um you know they've got they've, the governments have got so much control over us already um that i don't see how Vaccines are even relevant in that debate. Um, it's, it, it seems to me uh, unfounded paranoia. Um, I mean, I, I agree that the Great Reset is awful and it's a socialist, sort of global socialist plan, which is which is going to be terrible for the world. Uh, but I really don't think that it's in any way uh, linked to vaccination. In fact, on the contrary, I think the more people get vaccinated, the more likely it is that we'll get out of a lot of these restrictions that have been imposed on us because of because of the pandemic. That, that is a point, but then there's also the argument that I've definitely read, I know, but even your colleagues at the, at the Daily Friend who have written articles that have different perspectives to what you say, saying that, the, that what, what passes do is they do add another sort of layer to the general sort of checkpoint society where we're being asked to 
show and share data between the private and the public sector at more places than we were asked to before. Yes, we have, as many other people have pointed out, had to show ID to get into bars and bottle stores for quite a long time. But this is really saying we're going to have to show ID at even more points, you know, to go into supermarkets, for example, or to go to work in the morning and all the rest of it and to share a lot more of that data. So there is a more of a sort of an infrastructure set up that is sharing that data between private and public sector, between various different players, and also has a bit of a sort of geolocation sort of tracking element to it. And sort of reading up prepping for this interview, you know, like there, there have been papers written that have suggested that we could quite easily convert the, the COVID pass into a carbon tracking pass going forward. So I think people's concerns are less about the fact that we're already being tracked anyway, which is which is definitely already happening. But thinking about how a new infrastructure and a new normalization of additional checkpoints in our day to day lives could be another step along a sort of slippery slope towards a more checkpoint based society, which might be more or less desirable, depending on where on the political spectrum one happens to lie and where your values lie in terms of greater good versus individual freedom. Yeah. Now, look, I mean, yeah, I'm an old libertarian, so I, I, I distrust governments and I certainly don't want the whole papers police society. Um, you know, although I do accept that we already live in one, uh, you know, and the fact that we all have to have an ID that the government only provides you with, with government services if you have a legitimate government ID. Um, you know, the fact that you actually are required to provide your address to the government. The government is supposed to know at all times where you live. Um, it doesn't always, but uh, it, it, legally you are supposed to you are supposed to do that both to Home Affairs and to SARS, obviously. Um, SARS can already look at your at your bank uh, at your bank accounts, can track everything you buy with your credit cards. Um, you know, so I don't I really don't think that vaccine that that the whole vaccination effort significantly adds to to the danger here. Um, you know, and I think if someone wants to, to come up with other ideas for similar things, like, you know, like you say, the carbon tracking passport or whatever, then that ought to be discussed on its own merits. Um, and I will certainly oppose it because I don't see any good reason why um, why anyone else should know, which should, should know that. I mean, I, I, I don't see any good purpose that can be derived from that. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of strange paranoia um, you know, on, especially on people who, uh, among people who are opposed to vaccines. And I've seen that with a lot of people. They go down this, this skepticism, you know, vaccine skepticism rabbit hole. And they, they end up being complete conspiracy theorists about all sorts of things. Um, and it's, it's really quite worrying, uh, you know. I've seen it happen to very smart people, people close to me. And it's, um, it's troubling. I think that's a very good point. So I think that's what it comes back to what I try to separate right at the beginning. That's in order to have productive conversations around these sorts of issues, you have to separate the two questions, which is whether the vaccine itself is good and good for you or whether the method being used to encourage or to force you to get one is in itself a good thing. And I think there is room for nuance there and people can take different positions across that matrix. You don't have to sort of agree to both things at the same time in order to be logically consistent in your worldview going oh. forward. But when you try and conflate those two ideas together, you sort of force people to pick a corner on a board and people then soon feel attacked and bed down into their various different factions and it just creates bigger and bigger divides. But I think coming 
back to the pass issue itself because it is it does seem to have quite a lot of connotations in South Africa in particular given our history of having domestic passes I think that's also something worth noting when it comes to the past question in that yes we have had things like vaccine yellow yellow certificates to get into various parts of Africa for a long time but those were international checkpoints so it's almost like going into someone else's domestic house they weren't internal checkpoints Unfortunately, given South Africa's political history, internal checkpoints have got a very dirty, very ugly connotations in our society in particular. And I think that when conversations start to get to the sort of pass level before we've had the productive conversations around whether or not this is medically good for you or for society, it does open up a little bit of leeway for some of those sort of conspiracy theory perspectives to come in and for some of those deep divisions in society to bubble forward into the, into the present. And we've seen that. We do have some of the higher vaccine hesitancy rates here in South Africa compared to several other markets. I don't know if you'd agree with that assessment, from what, but from what I've seen, I think that our anti-vax movement here is quite advanced compared to a lot of sort of economically similar markets. Do you think there's any relevance to that comment about the sort of social wound that we have, that we have to address very carefully and we start throwing these sorts of words and concepts around in our particular marketplace? No, you know, I don't. And, and I, I frankly, I, I find it a bit offensive, actually. Um, you know, I've also seen parallels drawn, uh, not just with the apartheid dom passes, but with, um, uh, with Nazism and so on. You know, uh, and I, I find that it really diminishes the the, the, the Nazi experience, you know, the horrors of, of Nazism, and and in, in the case of Don Passes, the horrors of apartheid. Um, no, you know, the, these these certificates are not at all comparable. You know, I mean, that's like saying, well, you, we don't want to give people driver's licenses because it might remind them of having a Don Pass every time they get stopped at, the, at, at a roadblock and the police ask for the driver's license. Um, you know, and oh, without a driver's license, you're not allowed to drive, and you you might not be able to work because you can't get to work. You know, there's all sorts of rights that are being taken away from you if you don't have a driver's license. I don't think it's comparable to Donpasses at all. Uh, the Donpass was based on a physical feature that you couldn't change, your skin color. Right? That is what made it evil. That is what made it discriminatory, um, and and what made it irrational. Right. It, it, it made no sense to, to um, control the movements of people based on their race. Um, it makes a lot of sense, logical sense, to control certain actions of people based on disease status, you know, on, on the harm they could pose to others because of their, their disease status. Um, and there's, very, there's a very simple way, you know, if, if you, you, you couldn't get rid of your dompas. Um, you know, you couldn't get a pass to go into white areas or whatever. Um, that, that you couldn't do that. You, there wasn't something you could do in order to be allowed into white areas back in apartheid days. Uh, there's absolutely something you can do to get a vaccine certificate if you need one. Right? Get vaccinated. Simple as that. You know? So I don't think it's a good comparison at all. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty poor comparison in my, in my view. Yeah, it's a it's a very sort of touchy subject given given the history and everything. I think that where that some of that conversation might start is when we start to see companies saying that you're not going to be able to earn an income anymore unless you you do this thing, which does mean that it shifts from being something that's 
voluntary to almost not being voluntary because if you do live in a society where you have huge amounts of unemployment and you're saying basically you're going to lose your job unless you do this thing whatever that thing is it, although you say you can change that by doing the thing there it, it does sort of push things to more towards the corner of coercion and less around the sort of idea of of incentives in order to to yeah. become part of the part of the program look so far the the um, the human rights council has said that it is not constitutionally valid for companies to discriminate on the basis of vaccination status um, i suspect it will go to the constitutional court um, it kind of has to um, and I suspect that they'll find that it is actually legitimate because companies have a, have a right to protect their staff from, you know, uh, unvaccinated staff and, and that, that is, uh, presents a real risk to them, a health and safety risk to them. Um, so I think there'll be, there'll be a ruling at some point that says companies will be able to discriminate. And in that case, you'll fall back on either you do a job that you can, where you don't pose a risk to others uh, where you don't pose a risk to your, to your your coworkers or your or customers of the of the of the company, um, or you present regular negative COVID tests so that you'll be isolated as soon as you do get COVID. Um, you know, it, it's yeah. You know, when you think about it, it's 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 not at all. It's it's not entirely new either. You know, I was just watching ER. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that old. TV series, right, and it was, it was in season two, which is, was broadcast in 1995, and someone joined the hospital, uh, you know, new employee, and the first thing they did, they tick off a bunch of boxes, and they said, right, can you, will you please take your hepatitis vaccine, and this vaccine, and that vaccine, these are required, right, um, that was in 1995, and this was obviously in a setting where you work very closely with patients in this case. Um, and, and staff were required to get vaccinated. And there was no big hoo-ha about that. It was perfectly Yeah, natural, and vets obviously normal. get tetanus shots. And so if you join the army, you get them all, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> if you join the army, you get them all. Um, you know, I, I, I think, I, I don't know what the rules are about getting employed in, in, you know, public health sector in South Africa these days, whether people need vaccinations or not. Um, but I don't think there's anything particularly sinister about that, you know. Um, yeah. You know, in then I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not afraid of vaccines you know uh, some people are and I think that irrationally so um, I, th I think they're very much mistaken um, but I'm not afraid of vaccines I really don't see a big issue with with requiring vaccines if those particular vaccines pose a particular threat in a school I would expect people to be vaccinated against measles you know it's, it's, I don't think it's entirely unreasonable what you said about the constitutional court is interesting because if you do get to a point where essentially the South African constitution or the UN or whoever says it's okay to discriminate against uh, your workforce in the in the private sector and not working in directly in the health sector like you were mentioning which I think are special cases that have their own sort of rules and laws anyway so speaking more to obviously a more office-based space and South Africa obviously has quite stringent labor laws anyway in terms of how you're allowed to discriminate against your employees I think it sets some really interesting precedent there because obviously COVID is not the only infectious disease that can be prevented or that people might have an interest in knowing your health status on in South Africa. But South Africa has taken, I don't think most of the world's taken quite a 
cautious view as to what sort of health information you have to disclose to the public or to your employer. I think I can have, think of one example. I don't know how relevant you will find it, but something happened to my cousin who is a teacher. She was bitten by a child in her school. The child drew a lot of blood out of her arm, but she was not able to request the HIV status of that child because of South African law. And as such, my cousin had to go on an ARV treatment in case the child had HIV. So, I mean, that's quite an extreme example, but it does show that we've taken a very cautious view as to medical privacy and not sharing that information with anyone else. And if the Constitutional Court does change its mind there, it's probably going to upend quite a lot of other existing labor and biomedical sort of privacy rights as to what sort of information yeah. you are allowed to withhold from the public for the public's greater good. I think TB is an interesting one there too, obviously also highly communicable. I think in 2019, more people died of t TB than died of COVID last year in South Africa. And it's preventable, but it's not something that we are even allowed to ask people really to disclose if they work for us. So I think that the precedent here could have quite a lot of labor law and greater societal impact if we do decide that discriminating against health or health participation status is is a worthy thing to do. Yeah, that's true. And and it's 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 a complex issue. Um, in your example with the, the child HIV, I think that the that child should uh, you know should actually disclose the HIV status. Um, because not because you, you know the child doesn't have a right to privacy. Normally the child would have a right to privacy. Right. But because of the situation, uh, you know, because the child bit someone, right, now suddenly knowledge of the child's HIV status is actually relevant. Harm uh, had taken place. <laughs> exactly. You know, so I would, I would very much want, uh, uh, want to know that. And, you know, you also don't want to subject people to that, that month-long ALT treatment um, is it tea treatment just for nothing? It's, it's yeah, that's horrible, not a it's horrible. not a small thing, which is why I brought it up. It's a very big yeah, cost no, that a, my cousin had to bear for something that might not have been necessary. Yeah, no, it's yeah. an awful treatment, and most most people, it's so awful they don't actually complete it. Um, you know, it's it's uh, not quite as bad as chemotherapy, I guess, but it's but it's it's pretty close. Um, it's nasty stuff. Um, but yeah, it 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 does raise interesting questions about TB. Um, you know, it's uh, for a start. People, uh, you know, babies are routinely um, vaccinated against TB in this country. Right? So TB only circulates amongst people who weren't vaccinated as as, as children. Um, I'm. I don't know actually whether TB should be something that is notifiable in a workplace. Um, you know, I mean, I understand that you don't want to discriminate against people when they actually don't pose a significant threat to other, uh, to other staff members or to customers. You know, with HIV, they don't pose a significant threat to others. You know, you can't get HIV just by looking at someone. Um, you know, you can get TB just from looking at someone. So maybe the rules should be completely different between TB and, and HIV. Um, so, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I'm just not sure how the law can discriminate against those things because it was the principle of privacy and the principle, you know, involved in, in what you can and cannot or should and should not do. Because that does beg the question, coming back to the vaccine passes, like being vaccinated or not, does not actually 
stop you from posing a risk to everyone else. It might reduce the risk, as we have discussed today, but it doesn't eliminate the risk. So a vaccinated person can still pose a risk to an unvaccinated person or to another vaccinated person. So there is there is again coming back to this idea of the distinction between harm and risk and that showing a pass might give even a false sense of security that a person no longer poses a risk that might not actually be oh, it, it says that you've done it says that you've done what you could to yeah, minimize it shows the risk it shows to, willing to it shows participation uh, in the social project more than it actually validates whether you are healthy or not a risk factor. Again, you can, use, you can use the drunk driving example. You know, not being drunk uh, doesn't guarantee that you're not going to get an accident and kill someone, um, but it shows that you've actually taken reasonable measures not to do so. You know, the same with, same with not breaking any other uh, traffic laws. You know, you're taking reasonable measures to, to, to minimize the risk of you being on the road. And, and that is acceptable according to the law. Um, and I, I think that's reasonable as well. I think it's reasonable in the case of, of uh, vaccination. Isn't that the, that the converse though, the, the drunk driving example compared to the, the vaccine example? Because in the drunk driving case, you are prevented from doing something that could increase your risk, whereas on the vaccination side, you are required to do something that will reduce your risk. So it's actually the sort of opposite, the sort of flip side of, of what's required. So no, I suppose, but I think I think that's I think that's semantic, really. You know, I think being being unvaccinated is the risky action, is the risky behaviour. You know, unless you've got a good reason not to be vaccinated, and there are people with with good reasons not to be vaccinated. Um, you know, you really you really ought to, um, and and that your your risky behaviour shouldn't become uh, a burden on other people, shouldn't become a risk to other people. But that, that's quite an interesting way of framing it, that saying that not doing something now becomes a risky behavior. And I think that, that also opens up questions as to what other lacks of doing something could be start to be classified as being a risk to society. So failure to do something, to participate in any sort of project, being classified as risky behavior rather than sort of the, the, the converse is, is quite an interesting idea to bring into our social discourse. Right. I mean, I don't know if you can think of any sort of other examples outside of healthcare where people could be required to do something Fa- to reduce failure, risk. Failure to show that you can drive a motor car is a good enough reason to prevent you from driving a motor car. You know, you need to you need to set a test first. You know, you need to you need to prove your competence. Same with a firearm. You need to prove your competence. You can't just get a firearm. You know, say, oh, okay, you're not a bank robber, you're not wanted by the police, fine, here you go, have a gun. No, you need to prove your competence first. Um, you need to prove that you can store the firearm safely, that you, there's all sorts of requirements, the positive actions that you need to take before you're allowed to do this. So, you know, the notion that you have a right to, to carry a firearm, uh, you know, yeah, sure, you do, but it is conditional upon certain actions. But I suppose the question then is, what is becoming conditional here? So, so what should people be prevented from doing if they fail to participate in the social contract? I think that's probably the, the sort of getting closer oh, only, to, only to where people behavior. get uncomfortable. Look, it's only, it's only risky behavior. And, and you know, I don't see that there's a great incentive to stop people from doing things unless it is really risky. You know. Um, I mean, in the private sector, you're not going to show you're not going to show customers the door. 
um, unless they really do pose a threat to your business, to your customers, or you know, uh, unless them shopping at your shop means that too many other customers are going to stay away because they don't want to be around vac unvaccinated people, whatever the case may be. So there's there's no real incentive to to not give unvaccinated people services without good cause. You know, so I, I I really don't think it's going to be that much of an, that much of a problem. Um, there might be some edge cases where where it, it is a problem, you know, where, where there's there's bias involved and prejudice involved, um, but largely the incentive structure is to simply prevent unvaccinated people from doing things that are specifically risky. To other people, which makes specifically pose a risk of infection to other people and and those other people you know a lot of people say oh but they're vaccinated they should be protected well no no vaccine no vaccine is 100 effective right so you're addressing the five percent or ten percent or thirty percent in the case of jj of people for whom the vaccine is not effective and you're also addressing the, the people who cannot be uh, vaccinated for medical reasons right because they're undergoing cancer treatment or they've got some sort of immune uh, disorder um, they also need to be protected. So, you know, I, I think in in the in that scenario, I, I don't th I don't think these these vaccine certificates are going to be used for anything more than preventing the unvaccinated from posing a real threat of contagion to uh, to other people. Okay, and that brings me to perhaps the, the more sort of tricky question here, which is to sort of who should these things apply to and who, who can they apply to ethically speaking? And here I'm speaking particularly of younger people, where I know the NHS put out an article that they tried quite hard to sort of take away because it was opening up too many questions for the more conspiracy theorist fringes of the internet. But some of their papers were indicating that for young boys, they, the vaccine could perhaps pose higher risk than COVID itself for that individual. Now, there's still a social incentive, as you're saying, to get those children vaccinated in order to protect the greater good. But when the risk to the individual becomes sort of concentrated on a small group, is it still fair to ask the small group that might be taking on higher proportional individual risk, assuming that the data does bear out and those sort of studies do prove to sort of point that some groups that perhaps the, the sort of cost benefit equation aren't quite the same as for other groups. Is there is it still justifiable to ask children in particular to to accept things like vaccine mandates or vaccine passes in order to get educated in the public sector, even if they would be taking on a higher proportional risk than what the rest of society is protecting them as individuals against. Should this be a conversation that only really refers to adults, as I suppose what I'm asking you, or are you sympathetic to the views that these sorts of policies should be carried on to school level? Because I know lots of big debates in society have taken place with teachers unions and with parents all arguing different sides of the corner. And I don't have a dog in this fight myself, but I am sympathetic to almost all the actors views in this conversation because it is not quite as clear cut for a 14 or 15 year old child than it is for a 50 year old person who has a sort of choice as to who they associate with and where they go to work and has a very different yeah. health and risk profile. Look, I, I think I know exactly which retracted study you're referring to. And it's, it's one of myocarditis in, in young boys, which apparently there was a one in a thousand chance or so um, of, of giving young boys uh, 
12, I think between the ages of 12 and 15 or something, myocarditis by, by getting vaccinated. That paper was retracted not because it was, you know, not, not politically convenient. That paper was retracted because the, the denominator in their math was completely wrong. Right? They'd counted something like 34,000 uh, vaccinations when in fact there had been 850,000 vaccinations. Um, so the risk, instead of being one in a thousand, actually actually was considerably smaller um, by orders of magnitude. You know, so I mean, this wasn't even ballpark. So the idea that the risk for for young people of being vaccinated is significant is is um, you know, it's, it's that's that's not really true. You know, the, it is, uh, the that's not the point I'm making at all. Side, I'm, I'm saying of, hypothetically of, speaking. If, mm -hmm. if side effects were greater than, I'm, I'm not saying that, that, that any of these studies is legitimately correct or not, but it is a valid question that like the, the risk of the primary cause is different to the greater risk of society for different groups. And oh, that we're, there we're, is probably a point where, it, where, where the balance shifts between the, the reward to society versus the risk to the individual. Yeah, I think if and when the balance does shift, I think we need to we need to perhaps relook at it. But uh, one of the issues is um, that, especially with the Delta variant, um, and, and maybe we can talk about virus evolution and how viruses evolve, why Delta variant is so much more transmissible. Um, being more transmissible, it's got a, a reproductive number of between five and ten, depending on who you ask. Um, that means that instead of sixty percent vaccine coverage, which you needed. Uh, at the beginning of the, the pandemic for the, for the original variant um, to achieve herd immunity, we now need um, up to 90% coverage uh, in a population to achieve herd immunity, to, to stop the virus from spreading, uh, to end the pandemic. Uh, now, there's no way that you're going to achieve 90% coverage in any population right, without including children. You know, in Israel, they've, they've, they've vaccinated 85% of the adult population Right. But that's only the adult population, you know. So, uh, you know, people say, "Well, but look, there's, uh, there's these countries have high vaccination rates, and they're still experiencing new waves of Delta." So, yeah, that's because Delta is much more transmissible, and they haven't reached anywhere near herd immunity in terms of vaccination um, to to stop Delta. So, you're going to carry on getting uh, getting the virus to spread. Um, so, if if herd immunity is your goal then you have to include uh, children because they do spread it. They, they do contract the disease, they do spread it, and they might have, um, they might be very unlikely to get seriously ill from it um, and very unlikely to die from it, or it's not unheard of. Um, you know, they do pose a significant threat of, of spreading the disease to, to older people um, and perhaps people with comorbidities, um, you know, who have just as much of a right to life as anyone. Um, you know, you've got to take into account that most of these, these uh, side effects, um, myocarditis, for example, pretty much all of them have been mild cases, and it's very easily treatable. You know, so we're not talking, it's not a death sentence for, for these kids. You know, if they happen to get myocarditis as a result of the vaccine, which they might get, uh, you know, one in a 30,000 chance or something. Um, it, it's, it's not like we're asking them to take on a really grave risk. But if you're asking them to take on any risk that's greater than the primary cause, that's quite a utilitarian argument. Yeah, assuming it is greater I'm, I'm speaking hypothetically again. I'm not convinced it is. I'm not convinced it yeah. is. Um, but yeah, that, look, 
then then you do get into the the utilitarian view yes um, and I think if the risk you're asking them to take is not excessive um, I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable you know. I think that's a better question you've got to make rational decisions you know because if you, if you go back to hard principles all the time um, you know <laughs> I, I tried to do that when I was younger you know try and go back on hard principles and I always ended up I have to had to be an anarchist because you know, I, I couldn't justify any sort of coercion for any purpose. Um, you know, if you want to, if you want to go to, to first principles, then why should government enforce property rights? Why shouldn't property owners enforce their own property rights? You know, why should there be a third party, a government um, that that has the power to do that? Um, you know, you, and 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 so on. You so you you can go back to first principles all you like. The fact is, we live in a real and messy. Uh, a nuanced world where quite a lot of what we know is actually uncertain. Um, there's things, things we don't know. We know a lot more about this pandemic now than we did uh, we did 18 months ago. Uh, but there's still quite a lot of things we don't know. We don't know how it's going to how this virus is going to evolve, whether it might um, escape vaccination in future with future variants, um, and then you know whether we need uh, just a booster shot or if that is going to be enough, or whether we need. Um, Regular shots, you know, once every once every year or so, just like we do with the flu vaccine. We don't know these things, so we need to be open to to adjusting to the facts on the ground, and we need to be open to making decisions that are not perfect, but are the best we can do under the circumstances. Yeah, and it's a social problem that we're dealing with here. So, so neat answers don't come to to neat solutions, and they point in quite uncomfortable directions. I think what's probably more important is to to ask these questions and to sort of decide for ourselves as society what our our lines are or what our what our common values are. How much we do expect individuals to participate in the the greater good project. And I think it's interesting speaking to you because generally, sort of libertarians take the entirely opposite view on that regard that the that the individual should not be asked to sacrifice anything for the for the for the greater good. But then again, as you point out, we do live in a society in which we give up some physical and physical rights in exchange for some physical and physical protections. And the more protections we want, the more of those rights we have to give up. And I do say rights in inverted commas because most of these rights we talk about are rights that are granted at the the sort of will and benevolence of the state which we live in, which is the uncomfortable reality of the the world that we have, what is and what ought are two different things. You know, we also shouldn't be required to pay tax. Um, yet, in the real world, where we do acknowledge that a small government has a, has a has a legitimate purpose for existence, we do need to fund that government, which means we do need to pay tax. And then our question becomes not whether we pay tax, but how much tax we could reasonably be expected to pay. You know, so a lot of these things don't have absolute um, clean-cut answers. And I, and I think really when you're dealing with something like, like infectious disease and how to control it, I think you're dealing with something that you are going to infringe on, on what people believe to be their natural rights. Yeah. We did back when we had the Black Plague. We, kept, we locked the city doors. We kept people, we let them die outside, you know, in order not to get, get the disease into the cities. It um, didn't always work. But uh, there were all sorts of infringements on people's rights in order to, in, in response to infectious diseases. 
Most of those infringements, fortunately, though, were, were temporary, not not exactly yes. permanent. Yes. Which is which is, uh, I, think, I think, another another thing worth pointing out. Again, with taxes, I think a good example because and taxes I, I tend to only roll up; they never roll down. <laughs> I, th I think with COVID, Jana, yeah, no, taxes are permanent. Sadly, once you give for government power, they never they hardly ever give it back. But I think with COVID, it will be temporary. You know, if if you look at virus evolution generally, um, the things that benefit a virus from an evolutionary perspective is uh, they want to be transmissible they want to they, they want to live right so the more the better they can transmit the, the the better it is for the virus now that means they shouldn't kill their hosts or at least shouldn't kill them quickly um and and then you know that's why you also see higher transmissibility because as soon as you get higher transmissibility that outcompetes the the less transmissible variants that's why the whole world is now is now seeing delta spread um and delta is basically dominated and then um, overtaken all the other variants. I think we will eventually see a, a virus, a, a COVID virus that is um, very transmissible, um, probably not that much more transmissible than Delta. I don't think it's got that much more to go before it reaches sort of optimum transmissibility, um, but is less virulent, is less dangerous. And then all of a, a lot of this urgency about vaccinating and trying to get the virus under control is going to fall away. And it's going to become just another seasonal, seasonal coronavirus, just like we already have with with colds and, and flus. So, I think I think in in a few years' time, uh, we probably won't be worried about this sort of stuff at all. And I don't think it will have permanently harmed. Um, I, I don't think the public health measures will have permanently harmed our freedoms. Um, I, I, I do think a lot of the lockdown measures that are not really well related to public health, I think a lot of those do damage. And I think it's quite alarming to see how much power government has to simply shut down our economies and stop us from earning a living. I, I think that, that really scared me during the lockdown. That it was even possible for a government, even without a state of emergency, to say, stay home, don't go to work for the next six weeks. That's... You know, I wouldn't have thought that possible, um, and yet here we are. So th that's really where a lot of my concern lies: is with with the the, the autocratic, the, the tyrannical powers that governments adopt. Um, I'm not at all worried about vaccination. I think vaccination is a good thing, and I, th I think I think the more people get vaccinated, the better, and it's a good way for us to get um, to get the economy going again. <coughs> So I think I think we need to spend our energy more on on the real threats to freedom um, that that we've seen during the pandemic, and vaccination I don't believe is one of them. That that is an interesting point, but I'm going to just going to push back on you just on that one because I thought that's quite an interesting thing to pick up on because if your if your stance is that lockdowns were an overstretch of government sort of power and they were largely arbitrary and didn't have any sort of real or, or they were not justifiable from your perspective. Uh, and again, I, do, I won't say whether <laughs> like where I stand on that, but if you are taking that stance at the same time that we're listening to politicians across the world in places like Canada and Australia saying that in order to get out of lockdown, you must get vaccinated. Is that not a slightly contradictory term? Because essentially you are requiring a, an action in order to undo, uh, in your opinion, sort of unjustifiable action. Or do you have sympathy with that view? Or, or how do you square that circle? 
No, I, mean, I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, you know, yeah, I don't know if I articulated that very well. <laughs> a, lot, you know, a, lot of, a lot of these restrictions, a lot of these restrictions shouldn't have been there in the first place. Um, yeah. The fact is they, the fact is they are, right? And and for a lot of these things to get lifted, uh, funny enough, a lot of them are there not just because of governments; it's also because of public demand. Um, the public, uh, a lot of the public demanded lockdowns, and they demanded that government do something, and government said, "All right, then we will." And they did a lot more than what the World Health Organization had ever recommended in, uh, in, 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 the, case, in the case of a pandemic. Um, you know, so t in order to change public opinion and in order to change the government's minds on this, um, I think vaccinations is a good way out. It's, uh, but is that not justifying? Or is that, not, I, is that sort of legitimizing I, not, what, no, the, just, what went before? It, no, I don't think it legitimizes it. I just think it's, a, I just think it's pragmatic. You, know, you won't get your freedoms view. back unless you unless you do this thing. The freedoms that we shouldn't have taken away from you anyway, yeah. unless you. <laughs> yeah. A, and I still and a, I still think, just from a scientific perspective and a medical perspective, I think vaccines are a really good idea. And, you know, I'm fully vaccinated and very happy with it. Um, I have a. But a should rights be held out as a get, as a sort of a bribe to get to get previous rights back? I think that's my question. I think that sits quite uncomfortably with people other than myself. <laughs> no, I'm sure, I'm sure. It, also, it also sits uncomfortably with me, but it's, it's still, you know, if you also need to convince governments to do things that are in your interests and, you know, or stop doing things that are not in your interests. And if that means bargaining with the government, then so be it. Bargaining yeah, from the position that we're in right now, not the position that we would like to be in, ideally. Yeah, so I mean, yours is pragmatic. <laughs> If, if we could all be in the position we would like to be in, ideally, you know, then we wouldn't be involved in, in politics, would we? Um, the fact is that we aren't in the position we'd like to be in, and I'd like to get closer to the position we would like to be in, which is more freedom. And I think vaccines are a, a low-cost and, and effective way to get to, or to return to a, a semblance of, of more freedom. I mean, there's a lot of other things to do. Obviously, it's not only it's not only vaccines, but uh, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a big step in the right direction. Thank you very much. Well, we've come to the end of our hour. I don't know if you have any sort of closing thoughts or any threads you want to tie back together again before I let you go. But thank you so much for sharing your your perspective and for answering all the hard questions. I've tried to gather all the various arguments I've seen on social media and across various different platforms together, oh. and I've thrown them all at you. So thank you for no, that. I think I think I think I've made I think I've made the points I, I wanted to make, and uh, you know I just want to say if you especially if you're a libertarian out there, just go and get vaccinated. It's really you don't need to be afraid of just a little pinprick. Thank you very much. And if people want to get hold of you to continue the conversation, if you're open to being sort of tracked down, don't feel obligated um, to ask that. Where can people find you? I'm on Twitter. That's where I hang out most of the, most of the time at ivoferte.co.za. Uh, that's I-V-O without an R, uh, V-E-G-T-E-R. Uh, and then I write twice a week on the Daily Friend, dailyfriend.co.za, um, and you'll find me under uh, authors. Thank you very much. Thank you.